Welcome to Western New York Catholic Weekly, a production of the Office of Communications for the Catholic Diocese of Buffalo. Stay tuned as Greg Prince brings the Catholic newsmakers to you. Wherever it's happening in the diocese, you'll hear about it on Western New York Catholic Weekly. Given the news cycle of the past week or so, I thought we might revisit a couple of programs from last year. We'll start with Deacon Don Weigel, who spent some time with Catholic Relief Services working with Syrian refugees. And then a little bit later in the program, we'll hear again about the Catholic Charities Health Center on the west side of Buffalo that provides services for refugees. And we're talking with Deacon Don Weigel here on Western New York Catholic Weekly this week. And a little bit about a, a trip he took to work with Syrian refugees back at the first of the year. And it was featured in, you may have seen it already, in the March 2016 issue of the Western New York Catholic. And I, I, I think Kim did a really good job, you know, covering the story there. I maybe want to start by maybe – just giving people some background on, first of all, what is this problem with Syrian refugees? Why does it exist? Uh, yeah. You know, if it's if it didn't happen like this morning, it right. tends to fall out of the news cycle here right. in this country. That, that's true. That's true. And and the unfortunate the unfortunate part of this of the Syrian refugee problem is that it's a, it's a problem which is nearly five years old now. Um, Back in the uh, back in the year 2011, there was the Arab Spring. If everybody remembers those those terms, where Tunisia and no, Egypt we're not even and, there's exactly what I was talking about. We're not even using that. No, term we're not anymore. even use that anymore, yeah. right? Because that's a, that's a distant memory. Sure, but exactly. So yeah. many so many places in the Arab world were thinking that you know the their form of government would um, would tend more towards democracy than an authoritarian government. So there were. Um, you know, sometimes very very uh, peaceful uprisings and, and um, if you want to call them that or at least protests or sure. movements sure. in some places. Tunisia was a good example. Some were a little more violent. Libya was an example of that. In Syria, it was a very peaceful beginning of a very nonviolent um, start to, to have, you know, uh, uh, President Bashar al-Assad think about Opening the windows to a little bit more democratic um, way of governing, <clears throat> and instead it was met with a tremendous amount of repression. Um, and so, as the nonviolent and peaceful um, protests were met with guns and tanks and bombs, and and so the war began. And so the you know as soon as that began happening, some of the rebel groups then started arming themselves. So then. You started having that, and then in the midst of all of that, you had other. You had a whole series of, of groups that were unrelated, but all wanted to see Assad thrown out. And then you had ISIS come in and fighting on the side of the rebels. So, so from the United States viewpoint, you know they, they did not want to support Assad, um, but they did not want to support ISIS, and yet, and it's a very complicated political situation. So, what has happened over these five years now? has been the result of this is that in a, in a nation of about 22 million people, 12 million of them are displaced. Uh, so it's more than half of the people have been displaced from their homes. Uh, nearly 5 million of them have actually left the, the, the country of Syria and gone across the border to somewhere else out of a population of 22 million. And another 12 million or so of, of those people are displaced within 
with or another eight million rather are displaced within the country themselves, so that they are not where they lived and grew up, but they are somewhere else in Syria trying to find a place for the, to be safe. It's just an amazing thing. So, so you have some some a number of these Syrian refugees who have crossed the border uh, prominently into Lebanon and Jordan and uh, and into Turkey, especially. And and so you have these folks who are just there in these refugee camps with the, the scenes that you see of like tents and rows and rows and rows of tents of people who are still hoping for the day when the conflict ends and they can go back. There's another entire group who has decided that it will never be solved in their lifetime or will not be solved to their satisfaction. And so they are making the trek to go out of their country but go to in particular to Germany. Germany has welcomed Syrians with open arms. Um, uh, they have a lot of job opportunities. They've had kind of a negative population growth. And the Syrians, um, you know, I, one of the things that we need to do sometimes is to remind people that Syrians are not a poor group of people living in tents in the desert. These are uh, people who have a literacy rate that's higher than the United States and a high school graduation rate that's higher than the United States. These are well-educated, well-spoken, successful people um, who now find themselves in the midst of a conflict that they didn't want and they didn't start and they're just doing the best they can to survive. Well, this is one of those points where I'm jealous of my TV counterparts with their ability to kind of show graphs, images, maps, all right, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Just to paint a picture for us because you mentioned you got 5 million people going from Syria yes. to Lebanon. Right. Okay, right. moving that direction. Yep. Um, we are not talking about large countries, right? Like no, Syria right. is not a large country. No, that's Lebanon, right. Lebanon even smaller. Even smaller. That's right. And so, and so in Lebanon, for example, it's a um, you know one a full one quarter of the population of Lebanon now is Syrian refugees. Oh my gosh! So so imagine in the United States, you know what it would be like to have in our, in our population of three hundred plus million. Imagine for us to have. 125 million of them now as as part are all refugees uh, you know the it, it's it mind it's mind boggling and so there's a great need to help support those countries so that they don't just totally collapse and let me just go back to one of one of the first points you made about the start of the conflict in Syria um, you had a group um, who you know we'll now call the rebels looking to to change the situation in Syria, change change the government. Um, but what eventually happened with ISIS coming in isn't that kind of the antithesis of the change they were looking for? That's exactly right, and that's and that's that is that is more to the point. You know, I know that that um, that when people think of Syrian refugees and and perhaps refugees in general and especially the fact that they are Muslim, there is a great in, – in no small part probably due to a number of people that are mongering some fear about, about Muslims. Um, but, you know, there is a, a great deal of, of concern about, about these folks. But the reality is that the, the folks that are fleeing Syria are leaving the same people that we're afraid of. 
They're leaving. They're, they are running away from not just their government who is blowing things up. They're running away from the terrorists that are trying to take over and, and you know, and, and create mayhem uh, in, in their area as well. So, you know, they're fleeing the same people that, um, that, that we think uh, could do damage to our country as well. You mentioned there's about, what, 12, 13, 14 million refugees. They're just living in tents yeah. somewhere somewhere in Syria. Right. But many right. of them in camps. And many of them in camps. At, at yeah. some point, right, I don't think they want to – their goal is not to stay in those camps, right? I'm, I'm guessing in, over yes. the long haul. It, eventually, most of them are going to try to get out. That's Probably. right. That's right. And and many of them still maintain the hope of going back to their country. But when you see the pictures of what their country now looks like, many of them are losing hope. And so they've applied for refugee status and asylum and, and are asking the United Nations to send them anywhere, yeah. anywhere that'll at all. take them. And that'll take them. And, and, you know, we have refugee camps like this around the world. If you, if you remember back during the Sudan crisis, there, we still have camps. You know, there are still these refugee camps where people stay for years. You know, it is not an easy process to move people as refugees into countries around the world. And so some of some people stay there 3 years, 5 years, 12 years, 15 years before they find a place that they can be relocated. The people that come into the United States and I can just speak about our own Catholic Charities Refugee Resettlement Organization which does incredibly phenomenal work. The people that come in that are helped by refugee resettlement uh, come from uh, Burma and Burundi and, and some, uh, you know, some from the Middle East and they have spent years in the camps before they even had an opportunity to get here. And before they even get here, they go through anywhere between two year, uh, between like a year and a half and two years worth of vetting and examination and background checks. You know, so in order to get to the United States, it's not as if a Syrian refugee would come across the border, say, and and say, I want to go to the United States and two months later they're here. That doesn't happen at all. They don't get to choose where they go and when they are assigned where it is that they go, it's, it has already taken them years to, to get there in the process. I mean, just to highlight one thing that, that you uh, mentioned in the, in the article in the March Western New York Catholic um, – if you were a terrorist trying to sneak into the United States as a refugee, right? And as you explain it's, it now, it's kind of a stupid it's idea. It's a stupid right? idea. You're a stupid terrorist. It's a bad plan, right? Yeah. You, you are, it takes forever. Absolutely. You, you can get here much quicker on a student visa or a work visa or yeah. a tourist visa or something. You know, if you mean the United States harm, you're not, you're not going to pose as a refugee and, and hope to get there sometime in the next 8 to 15 years. <laughs> You know, it's, it's yeah, not a not, not a, a good plan. plan. And and just to you know, just kind of not to muddy the waters, but to just to highlight another point, we're probably going to have another situation in Ethiopia, given the fact that they're experiencing yet another record drought, right. and you're going to have a whole other wave of people That's that right. need to get out of that country because they phys they physically actually cannot live there anymore. Right. That's right. There's nothing to eat. There's no water. So. That's right. And, and you know the classic and, and the classic definition of why people migrate and where they move, um, you know, there's the push factors and the pull factors, right? Sometimes there's pull factors where, where things, are, uh, things are thought to be so good in the United States, that's where people yeah. want to go. Right. But there's also the push factors so that whatever country you're in, like Syria, 
you did not have a have an idea of leaving until you were pushed out by the circumstances in your, in your own country. Right. So, you know, so those things combine, and what we're seeing in a lot of places around the world are an awful lot of push factors that are uh, instigating the, this movement of people who would not have otherwise chosen to move. We've covered a lot of ground, and we haven't really even talked about your actual trip. But again, yeah. it's covered very well in the in the Western New York Catholic yeah. article in March. So yeah, I encourage people to, to take a look at that. But give me the give me the Cliff Notes version. What was maybe the most striking thing you experienced in Greece and Serbia? Yeah, um, boy, it's a it's a. There were two people that I spoke to. One one was a woman. Let's see if I can squeeze them both in. Oh, sure, it's um, okay. One was a woman whose name was Hyatt. Uh, she had uh, she she had six children. She was traveling with five of them because she had sent one of them on ahead to an uncle who lived in Germany. She was traveling alone with her five children because she was a war widow. She her husband was killed. Um, he wasn't he wasn't even a rebel, um, but he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so now it was just her and her six kids. Beautiful, marvelous kids who were just trying to be kids. Her comment was, you know, that that because of the war, her children had not been in uh, her children had not been to school in three years, and she was moving to Germany. She hoped so that they could get an education and not only learn war. Another man that I talked to was was a man named Ahmed who was on his way. He was an electrical engineer, so he's got all the degrees and everything. He was he was working as an electrical engineer. He has four sons. He and his wife have four sons. There was one day when the sons, the, the kids were at school, the wife was out shopping, he was at work, and they came back and their entire neighborhood was gone. Just gone. I, I just picture that, you know, just coming home and your entire subdivision, your entire neighborhood is just leveled. And they dug through the rubble, found what they could, which was almost nothing, moved to another place, and the same thing happened. And it happened a third time. And after the third time, he said, we can't survive like this anymore. We have to get out. As, as, as loyal as he was to his country, um, he said, I'm just not, we're just not welcome here anymore. The bombs are chasing us out. And so they packed up what they could, had everything that they owned on their backs, and made this trek on their way to Germany. Um, to, hear the, to hear their stories and to see the way that they make this, this move um, without ever having wanted to. And you can just picture what your own life would be like when suddenly everything that you knew and, and relied on was just gone. Um, it's heartbreaking. It's, 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 you know, it was um, the work that was being done by CRS and, and other people was absolutely inspiring. So many organizations that CRS is coordinating of, of helping people. Um, but it's just profoundly sad to watch what these people are going through. And it creates, I think, you know, a moral imperative for us to do more than we are doing, both as individuals and as a church and as, and as a government. Um, and I think part of what we need to do as responsible Catholic citizens is to lobby our government, to advocate on their behalf for more funding to provide for these folks and to open the doors to let these people in. You know, we've, we've taken in so far fewer than 4,000 refugees. Jordan has uh, – Lebanon has taken in 2 million. 
you know, I realize it's a, we're not right next door. Um, but there's a way that we can help more than we're helping. Our discussions on Western New York Catholic Weekly this week center on refugees. We'll revisit a conversation with Dennis Walzak, the CEO of Catholic Charities, and Dr. James Collins about the new Catholic Charities Health Center on the west side of Buffalo that works with refugees. Tell us about this project. I understand this has kind of been something that Catholic Charities has wanted to do for a long time. It certainly is, and we are so um, uh, proud and grateful we were able to realize our dream uh, in our service to refugees, and that dream was to create a comprehensive services center located in the heart of the West Side where about 90% of the people that we resettle uh, find um, either apartments or homes to live in. So to that end, in uh, 2011, uh, we uh, purchased the former Nativity Church, and it was the rectory, the school, um, and, and the church itself, and again, wanted to set up a comprehensive service center for refugees. Um, we, had the, we had the school remodeled, and we now teach, uh, in partnership with Buffalo Public Schools, about 260 adult new arrivals, the English language. We also use the former rectory as offices and meeting rooms for our employees in the program. And the last phase um, that was completed in January of this year was converting the former church into a a healthcare center, um, and that's the center that Dr. Collins uh, works in. And then, not only is it providing a needed service and a very accessible um, to uh, the people that we work with, the refugees that we resettle, uh, but another piece that we're very proud of: um, when the the building was designed, and we built a building within the church, we tried to um, capture as much of the original. Um, uh, design um, and the ambiance of the church itself into the new construction. So the stained glass windows are built into the center. The marble columns are also part of the walls of the center and the uh, wood floors have been refinished. So it is really quite a remarkable facility. And what a, what a, couldn't be a better repurposing of the mission. And I, again, we're, we're talking specifically because of the newness of the healthcare center and, again, focusing on the, this notion of working with the sick as a work of mercy. But the health center is one component of an extensive amount of work that Catholic Charities does with refugees, right? Correct. That, and what are some of the other components that uh, that Catholic Charities does? Yeah, you mentioned in terms of education. I know mm-hmm. that. We've talked about that before on the program. We uh, will resettle about 650 um, individuals from uh, Africa, Asia, um, and parts of the world where there's ongoing conflict. And um, by the nature of its definition, a refugee is someone who is leaving a very awful situation in their homeland and uh, trying to go to a better life. So our work is um, involves meeting them at the airport when they're arriving, uh, establishing an apartment for them, uh, furnishing the apartment, cleaning it, providing three days' worth of food, um, getting them work, getting them on uh, public assistance, um, helping them find jobs or training programs. So it's very comprehensive, and the way we like to look at it is really working with our refugee individuals and families to help them establish roots in the city of Buffalo. Yeah, and you mentioned the the West Side. I mean, that's uh, um, known for actually historically. 
in Buffalo. I mean, really a melting pot of cultures in the first place, just uh, historically in our city. In many ways, this isn't new, right? I mean, Buffalo has always welcomed those from around the world, and people identify themselves with that. And I know I grew up in Warsaw, and you know, I was just from Warsaw. But when you, you know, when you yes. in Buffalo, people identify with their heritage. We uh, have a reputation, I think, very well earned now across the world uh, as being a very refugee-friendly city and community. Uh, and even the, the church that we – the former nativity church back in the eight, late 1800s when it was built was built by Irish immigrants who at that time uh, were populating the, the northern part of the west side of Buffalo. So um, – and it changed over to a predominantly Italian population and, and, and now – we welcome in people sure. to that site from from all over the world. So yeah, you're very yeah, very, very much so. So the healthcare phase, Dennis, something that you've wanted to get into obviously a long time in terms of uh, servicing the uh, refugee population. I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering what happened before, you know, in terms of healthcare with the folks that you've been serving so far. Uh, there's a, a requirement that within 30 days of arrival, every a new arrival has to have a comprehensive health assessment. This is required by the State Department yeah. of Health. Um, so consistent with our dream to create as much of a one-stop shop center right. um, as we could that would include as many services as we can, we are fortunate uh, enough to be um, working with Mobile Primary, who has been certified by the State Health Department to provide these health assessments. Prior to that, we used to go to um, uh, Mercy Comprehensive Care, which is about seven miles yeah, yeah. away from um, yeah. uh, our main uh, campus. And um, that was uh, oftentimes uh, with our case managers an all-day commitment, especially if a family was involved. So this is much more time-sensitive, efficient, uh, and a more effective way to provide that service. Um, in terms of transportation, how do people get to Many of them walk because they live in the neighborhood, so they'll walk um, right to the center. And and, uh, again, I'm a primary care physician, a family doctor. Uh, When Dennis approached us about doing the RHAs, he said, well, that's only a very small portion of what these resettling people need. They need primary health care. And building the uh, church on the campus where where they come every day. And uh, I saw a guy this morning, and what we've been – to facilitate for these folks is we have the medicine delivered to the clinic because it can be a challenge for them to get to the pharmacy and okay. figure that all out. And we, we can help them with how to take medicines in America. And uh, he says, well, I go to school. And we said, well, you're just across the street. You can walk over and get the medicine. He said, I don't have to wait. <laughs> no, we just give it to you when you come in. Oh, that's great. So we provide a walk-in service. And uh, I think the farthest – Somebody has had to walk is about a kilometer. They, they, they use the, uh, the metric system. Uh, but they, there's a, we're on a bus route, two bus routes actually, so they can come by bus. Uh, but they're an ambulatory population. They don't, they don't know about cars. They don't know about bikes. They just they know about walking. So I can buy. Which, you know, um, that I would think is one of the uh, uh, challenges you're facing, right, in terms of culturally where these – where, where the folks that you work with and that you're serving are at, um, uh, many, right, haven't had any kind of regular health care, right? They, they don't know. They don't know about regular health care. Most of the children have never had an immunization. If they have, 
Um, Dennis mentioned the, the requirement of having the, the visit when they come over here. Um, they may be in a camp for 18 years, but six months before they come to America, they have a physical physical examination where the immunizations start. So they could be 18 years old to get their first set of immunizations. And then they have another uh, visit two days before they leave to be sure they're fit to travel. Yeah. And they come over here. So they don't know about regular care. Uh, many of the people get their care in pharmacies. So they would go to a pharmacist and they would give them what they think the person yeah, needs. Yeah. So getting, getting medical care is unusual. Uh, because of that, um, what they remember about care, we've tried to develop this in such a way that it becomes a, a walk-in ambulatory center. Um, because if somebody calls and says, I, I don't feel good, if you say, well, come in next Wednesday, if they're feeling better, they don't come in. Yeah. So we're trying to make this as walk-in as, as, as easily as possible so that they can just kind of come in when they don't feel good and establish their primary care with us and uh, feel a part of it. Well, and I would think in some ways that's kind of a shot in the dark on two levels for you and your fellow providers, right? First of all, um, they probably don't have a good sense of, you know, they know maybe my stomach hurts or my leg hurts or, you know, I'm having trouble with my eyes, whatever the situation may be. But then you have an added situation of a language barrier a lot of the time, <laughs> right? So, I mean, uh, you're, you know, I would think folks like yourself and, and the other, you know, doctors, nurses, et cetera, that you work with are really going above and beyond in terms of the care provided. Uh, yeah, I have neglected to mention Dr. Elizabeth Harding, uh, who is my, my colleague and partner there. And she has done this work in the past uh, after she finished her training uh, working with an indigenous uh, uh, and a refugee population, so she's very familiar with these with these folks, and uh, she brings a, a wealth of experience uh, to this. Um, but a huge challenge is is the uh, language problem. Um, we um, I don't speak Somali, I don't speak Nepali, I don't speak. Uh, uh, Karan, Karani. I, there's a. I don't. I speak English, so we we've had to rely on initially anyway a phone translation services service, uh, which has been very expensive, and um, we have to pay for that ourselves uh, the, as medical providers. Um, and we just recently hired a, a Somali-speaking man to work in the, cl- the clinic with us, and he's he's great because he has a nice, uh, affable personality, and he has a nice way of being able to. Uh, relate to the Somalis that we've been working with, and uh, it's been really helpful. It's much it's much better to have a person in the room than to use a phone phone translator's interpreter uh, service. I would imagine, though, Dennis, this isn't the only time you run into that kind of an issue, right? With a lot of your programs, you're going to have that language barrier, and this, you know, even if even if you've got the language barrier covered, you're not always speaking the same language yes. in terms of what the need is, right? We face that in, um, uh, in just about everything we do. Unfortunately, we have a number of our employees in our program were once refugees, um, so we hired them. And many of them are multilingual, yeah. so they speak you know, more than two languages, and um, they're very helpful. However, um, sometimes there is a language that we need that isn't being spoken on staff, so we have to also reach out in the community and get an interpreter. 
under the auspice, I guess, of visit the sick and, and working with the sick. This is one component of how Catholic Charities does that, right? Right. There are other um, and, and, and stressing the uh, visit piece, a number of our programs and services provide uh, intervention and help to people directly in their homes. And while it not, might not be physical uh, illness or health-related problems, we deal with a lot of, of emotional issues, a lot of trauma issues, um, a lot of um, issues um, that are inherent with the elderly. We have a um, outreach program, visitation program in Genesee in Orleans County that uh, visits uh, frail elderly on a regular basis. We have our multi-systemic therapy program that operates in Erie and Niagara County that works with families where a child is at risk of being pulled out of the home and being placed in an institution or a juvenile justice center or even jail. So we provide that service at home, and there's a lot of emotional issues. Uh, we respond to victims of domestic violence um, and abuse, and we, we do the visit at home. So uh, we do visit the sick um, in many different ways uh, across the eight counties of the diocese that we serve. Well, and as I mentioned, you covered just about all the works of mercy. Now, but I what? know that— I want to say one thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Besides Dr. Harding's support, we are soon to be joined by uh, Baker Victory Services Dental Services. Uh, yes, so, I meant to mention that yeah, as well. And so I, thank you for bringing yeah, that up. You know, we, we, being able to eat without pain is a, is a good thing. Yeah. And so uh, we're, we're going to have three uh, exam rooms uh, set aside for the dentists uh, to see people. And uh, they did a little uh, study last winter and they couldn't believe the need for dental work in this population. And I don't, I don't know. Sometimes you look in their mouths and you wonder if they've ever seen a toothbrush. Yeah. So. And in many cases, probably not. Probably not. So, yeah. yeah. You've been listening to Western New York Catholic Weekly, produced by the Office of Communications for the Catholic Diocese of Buffalo, with the help of the Catholic Communication Campaign and this radio station. Call us at 847-8744. Or send us an email to radio at buffalodiocese.org.